Proverbs 29. And at verse 25. And it says simply, the fear of man lays a snare. But whoever trusts in the Lord is safe. The fear of man lays a snare. But whoever trusts in the Lord is safe. Well, we uh, have seen that the cornerstone of Proverbs is the fear of the Lord. And we've seen that the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. It's the beginning of knowledge. It's, uh, it's the, uh, the bedrock upon which our, our lives are built. It's the, gro- it's the soil in which fruitfulness comes in our lives. We saw... Uh, months ago now when we started our look at um, Proverbs that the fear of the Lord was taking seriously what the Bible says about God and living our lives in the light of that. That's simply what the fear of the Lord is. Uh, If if, uh, God is a Savior, then we are to go to Him as our Savior. If He is holy, then we repent of our sins. If, if God is all-sufficient, then we trust in Him for our provisions. Uh, all of the characteristics then of God have a direct impact upon our lives. And so what the book of Proverbs is, is then just simply a working out of that. If this, then that. If God is like that, then what should, should that mean for me? And, and, and how does that uh, play itself out in our relationships? And uh, one of the major ways in which the fear of the Lord plays itself out is in our relationships with other people. Because we are always interacting with people. In our homes, in our marriages, uh, in our workplace, our schools, wherever we are, we're social creatures. That's part of who we are. We are driven. We are drawn to human society. Uh, But even though we are drawn to human society, it doesn't mean that that always goes well because we are fallen creatures. We are, we, we are sinners. They're sinners. We're sinners. And uh, it doesn't always go well. And so one of the themes of the book of Proverbs is the righteous and the wicked. This is what the righteous do. This is how the wicked live. This is what drives the righteous. This is what drives the wicked. These are their priorities. And so on. Uh, and oftentimes, uh, we fall into, even as God's people, the trap of fearing man over fearing God. One person has said that fear is faith. Fear is faith. It's not the good kind of faith, it's the bad kind of faith. It's really, you're putting your faith in the power of the other person. If true saving faith is putting your trust in the power and the ability of God to do you good, then fear of man is believing, having the faith to believe that they have power over you uh, to make your life difficult if you do not shape your opinions or your actions around 
their expectations. So what you're really doing is you are taking from God the uh, affirmations that you have to have about Him, that He is all-sufficient, that He is all-wise, that He can bless you and your life, and you're now taking that and ascribing that to people or society and saying they have the power to make my life better or miserable based upon how I respond. And uh, as we will see tonight, uh, there are many occasions in the Word of God to bear that out. Not just in the life of the wicked, but most of the examples that we'll see tonight are those of God's people. The, the heroes of the Bible are the, uh, those who uh, succumb to the fear of man. And so we've seen that the fear of the Lord was recognizing His ability and character and responding to that. Uh, but the fear of man, uh, as one person has rightly said, entices us to change our character, conviction, or conduct because of the intimidation of standing alone for God. It entices us to change our character, conviction, or conduct because of the fear of standing alone. The fear, the implications of what it will mean to follow God and to do what is right uh, as opposed to do what others expect from us. It comes uh, from uh, thinking about our own feelings to, uh, 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 to, high, to a high regard. William Gurnall says that we fear uh, man so much because we fear God so little. That, that, that is a very succinct way of putting it. William Gurnall, of course, uh, wrote the very famous book, The Christian in Complete Armor. And there are several copies of it down uh, in the basement. Um, but that's how he summed it up. We fear man so much because we fear God so little. We do not cultivate the fear of the Lord. We don't walk. And by that we mean not simply being afraid of God, but uh, understanding His provision. And this is what Paul for example, in the New Testament, was wanting the people to work out. Responding, fearing the Lord based on the Lord's goodness. The goodness of the God leads us to repentance, says Paul in Romans. The goodness of God leads us to repentance. Again, in Romans, Paul cites God's love as a means of uh, stirring up our fear of the Lord. If He did not spare His own Son... Will He not also give us freely all things? So what's Paul doing there? But he's really getting into the spirit of Proverbs and he's saying, look, if God did this, then will He not go the full length to provide for your every need? So why should you be afraid? And that is echoed quite, uh, uh, quite frequently throughout the Bible. Of whom shall I be afraid? The Lord is my light. The Lord is my salvation. That's not just poetic religious language, is it? Do we take that as simply, you know, uh, uh, poetry, religious poetry, or uh, high-sounding, uh, 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 flowery words that, uh, that we sing from time to time? Or do we really believe what the Bible says? 
And so the fear of man ultimately controls uh, our uh, opinions. And we allow the opinions of others then and their attitude to put either direct or more subtle pressure. And sometimes the more subtle pressure is the more dangerous. Uh, it, because it's, it, it's something that's gradual and it comes upon us over time. And nevertheless, whether it's direct or indirect, um, uh, it can lead to others controlling our attitudes and opinions. And so, as a result, the fear of man brings a snare. One person has said that it promises one thing and delivers another. That's what a snare does. A, a mousetrap does that. It promises a nice orange bit of cheese. But it delivers death, doesn't it, to the poor little mouse. Uh, and that's what a snare does. Whether you're setting a trap in the woods or it, whether it's uh, uh, setting a trap for an invading army, uh, you are trying to create a diversion. You are trying to uh, create a, a camouflage situation where they do not see the danger. And so the, it's promising one thing, but delivering another. It goes on to say that it appears practical to curb convictions to the opinions of those around us. It's practical. It appears the better part of wisdom to alter our God-directed course, they say. We will live yet another day. See, that's, that's the subtle part. And you often hear people say that. Well, I'll compromise now. But when I'm in a position to be more aggressive, then I will. But then it just becomes a series of compromises till the person has nothing left. But this is where the justification comes in. If you cave now, if you give, it, give a little ground now, that will put you in a far better position to negotiate down the road. And we have to be very careful of that kind of reasoning. This is always a deception, the person goes on to say. And so it is true of Proverbs 28-26, he who trusts in his own heart is a fool. The fear of man can be a very strange thing as well. We find many people in the Bible who, who will do ex exceptionally valiant things. And yet, under times of far less uh, 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 trial, they cave in to that. Jerry, uh, uh, um, Charles Bridges in his commentary on Proverbs says, many would fearlessly face the guns of war and yet be panic-struck at the ridicule of a puny worm or an insignificant person. Peter could take his sword out in the Garden of Gethsemane and say, Lord, here is the sword. He can reach out and cut off the, the ear of Malchus in a surge of bravado, and yet around a, 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 a fire, cave in to the words of a young servant girl. Are you not one of his followers as well. No, I'm not. <laughs> it's extraordinary. Not only then, but even after the day of Pentecost, Peter would all again, many days later of course, but Peter again would cave to the pressures of those around him 
when he was eating with the Gentiles, but then when certain Jews came along, he was overwhelmed with their opinions, with the fear of man. And it caused him to get up from this table where he was having a great old time and go over and sit with the Jews who looked down on the folks at this table. And what Peter was doing was denying the Gospel. The Gospel was at stake. Paul said, because he... Peter was creating two different kinds of groups. Was the blood of Jesus enough to, cl- to cleanse both groups? Are they not both acceptable and, wor- and, and wor- worthy in God's eyes? Paul was saying, yes. But Peter, when you're separating yourself, you're distinguishing between this group and that group. The fear of man is... Uh, you've entered into a, a destructive phase there. And what ended up happening was, of course, that many others that surrounded Peter were also drawn aside. This is oftentimes as well the, one of the destructive results of the fear of man. Not only are you affected, but you're also uh, um, influencing those around you. Maybe your children. Maybe your grandchildren, maybe your friends, maybe other people in your church. When they see you acting on the fear of man, they too may be led to following your example. And that's what Paul said happened to Barnabas. Even Barnabas, the son of encouragement, who himself went and took Paul and introduced him to the other apostles, who was brave at that point, Even Barnabas was being led astray. That's what the fear of man does. It brings a snare. It promises one thing, but it delivers another. Tim Keller said in his book on Proverbs, he said the only way to reorder our desires toward God is to identify where our hearts are already committed. Where are our hearts already committed? If we look to people more than to God for our worth, we will be trapped. It's just a matter of time, isn't it? We will be trapped by anxiety, by an over-need to please, by the inability to withdraw from exploitive relationships, by the inability to take criticism, and by a cowardice that makes us unable to confront others. And I think what Keller says there is right on the mark. Where are our hearts already committed? Do you ever ask yourself that? If, if I were in this situation, what would I do? If my friends or my colleagues or my family or whoever it was came and put pressure on me in this direction and that direction, what would I do? And am I ready? Have I counted the cost? Have I prayed through it? Lord, give me grace because I might be put in that position where I'll lose my friends. I'll lose my station in life. I'll, uh, uh, my, my, my family won't understand. Am I ready to fear you more than the opinion of others? And at that point, we have to be preventative. We have to take steps ahead of time. Not wait until we get into it. That's often what we do, don't we? We say, well, I'll cross that bridge when, it, when, we, when I come to it. It's called cross that bridge when you come to it, theology. I just made that up. 
but I think that's a, a good way of, of describing it because that's often the way we think. We don't project. We don't look into the future and say, what would I do in that situation if they said this? And so we prepare. We say, Lord, where is my heart? Search me, O God. Psalm 139. Search me, O God, and try my anxious heart and see if there be any wicked way in me. Where am I looking for value? Where am I looking for worth and purpose? Is it in the opinion of others? Or is it in you? Ministers are guilty of this just as much as anybody else. And it's a battle. It's a battle. Uh, one of uh, the best books I've read in ministry recently was by uh, uh, Paul Tripp. And Paul Tripp had been an experienced minister for years and years and years. And he said, uh, late on in his ministry, he would be gripped by the fear of man, even in the pulpit. As he looked around the congregation, he saw this person there, that person there. And he was gripped with the fear of man. And he was tempted to soft-pedal this or downplay that. And every minister has to grapple with that. Every minister has to grapple with, do I say this? How far do I go with this? Is this in the text? And should I bring that up? And what will this person think? What will that person think? What will be the implications for the congregation? All of these things uh, can be a snare even to pastors themselves. And again, that's where your prayers, not only for yourself, but for your pastor come in. For me or whoever's occupying this pulpit, that you say, Lord, give him the grace to say what he needs to say. To tell us what we need to hear, not what we want to hear. Jesus does talk about, uh, or, or, or uh, uh, Paul talks about those who have itching ears, right? And so that, that's always going to be uh, a, a temptation for the pastor. And so we, we see uh, so many occasions in God's Word where that was the case. We read of one in Genesis 12 where Abraham and Sarah, uh, Abram, which is what his name was at that time, and Sarai, before her name was changed to Sarah, uh, go down into Egypt. And Abraham is afraid of the Egyptians, so he's, he puts his own wife in a compromised position. And this again is what the fear of man does. We can't belittle it. We can't uh, underestimate the power, the destructive power of the fear of man. He puts her in a compromised position by saying, say you're my sister rather than my wife because they'll kill me. Oh, you might have to go and live in Pharaoh's house and become his wife, but I'll live. I don't want to die. <laughs> and so he, he is driven by the fear of man, isn't he? Of course, God steps into the situation and He basically says to Pharaoh, you're a dead man if you touch his wife. Because I, God had just said earlier in the chapter, he who blesses you, I will bless. He who curses you, I will curse. So God had determined right from the beginning, right from the calling of Abraham that He was going to bless him. And, and in His mercy, Abraham is embarrassed uh, in front of the Egyptians. 
And God will embarrass us. He will, he, will, he, will, he will show our actions for what they really are. And to, and to uh, the, the mercy of God, and because of the mercy of God, He does bring embarrass us for our cowardice. He will rebuke us. And, and so what do we do with that? We don't build a wall against it, but we own it. And we say, you know, this is, this is what I've become. I thought I was strong. I didn't prepare for this moment. And when the time came, it just came out of the blue. And oftentimes, it, that's the way they come, don't they? They just come. You weren't expecting them. You could come up in a conversation very quickly. You know how conversations can change? You could be talking about one thing and then all of a sudden, boom, you're talking about something else. And you're now put in a position where you're asked to give your opinion on this or that. And what should we do here? Oh. You're all of a sudden in a place where you have to put your Christian convictions into practice. And so it can take us by surprise. We see that with Aaron. When he feared the Egyptians, the Israelites, where they said, make us a God that we can go back to Egypt with. And Aaron took all their gold and so on and melted it down and made this golden calf. He feared the people around him. Saul feared when uh, uh, Samuel wasn't coming in time for the, for the sacrifice. So Saul, uh, because of the pressure of the people, Saul says, I have sinned for I have transgressed the commandment of the Lord and your words because I feared the people and obeyed their voice. I feared the people and obeyed their voice. We can think of the many Jews in the ministry of Jesus like Nicodemus, who did not publicly make profession of faith to, to be followers of Jesus because of their fear of the Jews. Many were drawn to Jesus, but did not make any kind of public allegiance to Him because they feared losing their station in life, losing their place in the synagogue, losing their social standing. This is what um, the fear of man does. Charles Bridges again says that it, 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 rather than the fear of the Lord being the beginning of knowledge, the fear of man brings us into ignorance. Brings us to a place of ignorance. How does it do that? He says that truth is its casualty because the only thing important is pleasing the other person. It's not what's his, what, what is true in this situation. What's the right path? No, it's what will please that person. What happens to the truth then? What happens to the good then? It, it's out the door because pleasing that person is the ultimate. And again, we could look at a multitude of of occasions in our own society today where that is the case. Affirming people in things that they are not for fear of offending them or excluding them. And, tell, and what, what does it do? It breeds ignorance. I want to be called something that I'm not. I identify as a man or a woman or something else or as a fox or as a cat. And I'm not making that up. There are people that identify as aliens. They identify as uh, uh, all sorts of different kinds of animals. 
There are people that identify as disabled people and have had limbs removed from their body because they, are, they, they feel in their mind uncomfortable with the body parts that they have. Friends, that, that, that's real. That goes on in our world. And out of a desire to simply please or to accept or to affirm, we are destroying the other person in doing that. So that where the fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge, the fear of, the, of man is, is what breeds darkness, ignorance, and destruction. So says Bridges, instead of asking what is right, a person inquires what is safe. Are we ready to stand for the right? Are we ready to stand for righteousness? Are we ready to stand upon God's Word? Or do we listen to that voice inside that says, if we just give ground now, we'll be better positioned to be uh, 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 more bold down the road. This is true not only of ourselves, but this is true of many who oftentimes do, who refuse to even come to make even a, a start in the Christian faith. Afraid of what Others will say, becoming a believer, becoming a follower of Christ because they're afraid of the implications of what it will mean for their friends and so on. Charles Spurgeon said it well when he says, friends may laugh you into hell, but they can't laugh you out again. In other words, they, their opinion can carry such weight that you will end up for the rest of your life denying what the Bible says about you and about what your need is, which will lead you to a place of destruction. But those same friends who laughed you into hell cannot laugh you out again. They have no power to draw you back. We've seen that in, again in many occasions in the Bible where Pontius Pilate was ready to let Jesus go. But those powerful words emerged from the crowd. If you let this man go, you're not Caesar's friend. The people knew what a shallow individual Pontius Pilate was. That his only, the only game in town for him was more power. And they knew what buttons to press. If you let this man go, you're not friend of Caesar. And he trembled at that thought not being a friend of Caesar. He knew that Caesar had the power to send him off here or there, to put him to death, or to send him off to some post that he didn't want to be in. He certainly didn't want to be in the post he was holding at the present time. And it says, when he heard that. You see, he thought he was so well positioned, didn't he? He even said so to Jesus. Do you not know that I have the power to release you? and the power to condemn you? Listen to what he's saying. How deceived he was. Do you not know that I have the power? Who do you think you're talking to? And then as soon as the voice came from the crowd, he was like putty in their hands. He had no power, did he? He had no real power. He was, he was under the influence. He, he was just like this in the devil's hands. I have power to release you. I have power. 
And Jesus says to him, you would have no power over me were it not given you from heaven. Jesus feared no man. My kingdom is not of this world. Jesus was, was solid. Jesus was gloriously uh, strong in the presence of the man who, who, who proclaimed this power over Him. And yet, Pontius Pilate was the victim of the fear of man more than anyone ever was. And so when Pilate heard that, he delivered Jesus over to be crucified. So, the fear of man brings a snare. We've seen in many accounts in the Bible where that was so. Isn't it amazing? Doesn't the Bible serve us so well in that way? It's like a hand in the glove, isn't it? It's a perfect fit for us. It takes all these great heroes of the Bible, like Abraham, like David, like Peter, all of these great people of the Bible, and shows how they succumb to the fear of man. Even after feeling themselves so confident. Well, it's a warning to us. Because those stories were told over hundreds of years. How many hundreds of years separate Abraham and David? How many hundreds of years separate David and Jesus or, 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 or Peter? And so what it should be telling us is that the passage of time doesn't make men bolder or make a, we, we don't evolve into more courageous people. And so the Bible is timeless. It serves us so well to say these are the lessons that I need to hold even 2,000 years after Peter and 3,000 years after David, and 4,000 years after Abraham. But whoever trusts in the Lord is safe. The word there for safe is to set, be set on high beyond man's reach. And so this, this salvation, this release from being held captive to the fear of man is to cultivate the fear of the Lord. And that comes with a daily, regular, engaging with the Word of God prayerfully. Constant self-examination. Constantly saying, if I were put in this position, what would I do? You're, you're thinking through every possibility, every scenario. That's what warfare is all about, isn't it? There are people right now in... In, in Ottawa or Washington or London, and they are planning out scenarios over what would happen in a terrorist attack. If, if Russia made this move or China made that move, what would be our counter move? Would we be ready? Would we be prepared? Would we have the courage to act upon our convictions as a society? And so, it is preparing beforehand. Psalm 91 says, because, this is God speaking about the righteous, because He has set His love upon me, therefore I will deliver Him. I will set Him on high because He has known my name. What a wonderful act of worship that is. Again, we're always looking for those times, aren't we? Lord, help me to glorify You. And we, these words roll off our tongue so easily. Lord, help me to glorify You today. Help me to bring honor to Your name. Okay. Here's the situation. You may, this person may never talk to you again. You may lose your job. You may, you know, uh, be put to shame at school or whatever it might be. 
How about right there? We can glorify God there. We can say, Lord, you're worth me losing all things. As Paul says, I have suffered the loss of all things. <laughs> what a beautiful thing. We, Paul says, we have become the off-scouring of the world. One thing I have desired, and that will I seek after. Uh, rather, Paul says, I, I, I want to know Him, the power of His resurrection and the fellowship of His sufferings. Friends, these are ways each, each day, oftentimes we're put in those positions where we are put up against come to, to come to terms with the fear of man versus the fear of God. Which road will we choose? And they, can't, and they come more than we care to think. Those opportunities where we can stand our ground and go against the crowd, go against our friends, go against our boss, go against whoever it may be that's putting pressure on us to act this way or that way. We've been seeing that in the morning uh, uh, messages and the letters to the churches at Ephesus and Sar uh, uh, Smyrna and Pergamum. And one of the threads in all of those is this idea of cultivating the fear of the Lord over the fear of man. What will we do then as a church, says the church in, in, in Smyrna or Pergamum, when Caesar comes knocking at our door saying, have you given your, spread your incense on the altar and, and uh, uh, called upon the name of Caesar as Lord, affirmed your allegiance to Him and bowed the knee to Him and offered your worship to Him? What will we do? The fear of man. Oh, we can read about that and open doors and the voice of the martyrs and all of these different organs of information where Christians each and every day are called upon to decide for the fear of man or the fear of the Lord. And so we pray. Oftentimes the prayer is pray that brother such and such in this prison would be faithful, that he would be strong. Because we've seen testimony where uh, people are almost ready to cave and throw in the towel because the pressure is so great. And it's not easy. And it's easy to stand in a pulpit like this on a Sunday evening and say these things. But we all wrestle with that. But again, the, the apostles the, in the early church, they had to work through these things, didn't they? You had Peter being delivered miraculously from prison where the doors are open and the angel takes him out and then he says, I realize that this was an angel. And then not long after, being flogged and beaten for his faith and Peter would have to uh, reason through that. and say, well, what's going on here? If the same God that delivered me miraculously from the prison cell can he not deliver me from a flogging? What should I conclude? Well, this flogging, this beating must be for a purpose. It's to bear testimony to the fact that his name, he is worth suffering for. And this is what they said. They went home rejoicing that they were counted worthy to suffer for his sake. They didn't say, this is just random. This just doesn't make sense. We've got to get out of this situation as fast as possible. No, they, they worked through it. Remember what some of the 
people around Jesus said, couldn't he who opened the eyes of the blind have kept this man from dying? And of course, they were saying that against Jesus. Say, well, what kind of man is this? He opened the eyes of the blind. Why couldn't he keep the man from dying? But really, what it was saying was true. He could keep this man from dying because he had opened the eyes of the blind as well, but he chooses, Jesus says, he chose not to go to the tomb of Lazarus so that the glory of God could be manifest. And we say the same when we're put in those situations where we're tempted to compromise. We say, here, why is God putting me in this position? Why am I having to choose now? Why am I having to risk losing everything I have for this moment? And God is saying, what will you do? Do you trust me enough? Do you love me enough? Do you believe in me enough? God is helping the disciples then to work through these things in the early church. If He did this, can He not do that? God says in Isaiah, I, even I, am He that comforts you. Who are you that you should be afraid of a man that shall die? And the Son of Man which shall be like grass. He says in another place, Cease from man whose breath is in his nostrils, for whereof shall he be accounted? In other words, stop fearing man whose life consists in the breath that goes in and out of his nose. It, it, it's, it's such a beautiful way of putting it it puts it in a very sharp focus for us. We see that with Shedrach, Meshach, and Abednego, who contrary to David, contrary to Abraham, contrary to Peter, affirmed with such glowing trust in the Lord. If it be so, our God who is able to, whom we serve is able to deliver us from the fiery furnace, and He will deliver us out of your hand, O King, but if not, be it known to you, O King, that we will not serve your gods, nor worship the golden image which you have set up. Powerful words. There, they were facing the same situation that the people in Pergamum and in uh, uh, um, uh, Smyrna were facing. Do it or die. Worship the image. Worship the, the king. Worship, follow the godless directives of a godless government or face the consequences. We will not. Even if God chooses, us, chooses to let us be thrown into the fire, we will not serve and bow down to your image. So they that trust in the Lord are lifted on high. God's love for us as we meditate on that love, that love which is supremely manifested in the cross, casts out all fear. That's what John says. Perfect love. And that's what God is, is delivering to us every day. His perfect love. It can't go wrong. I mean, He gives us the bread and the wine that we had this morning. Is there a more perfect example of love? This is my body which is given for you. I mean, we, we talk about that in marriage. The husband and wife giving their bodies to one another as an expression of their love. Giving their lives for one another. 
But Jesus is saying, I have done that for you supremely, not only by living for you, but dying for you. And that love, not just the terror of God, but it's that love, the perfect love that casts out fear. Fear of man. And it's moreover, it's that perfect love that causes us to not only love God, but love the people around us. To pity them. Not to see them as our enemies. Charles Spurgeon tells a wonderful story about a, a Huguenot, which was a, a French Protestant by the name of Bernard Policy. Um, and he was, a, he was a potter. And he made beautiful works of art. Spurgeon tells a story. He says, one day the king of France said to him, Bernard, I'm afraid I shall be compelled to give you up to the inquisitors to be burned if you will not change your religion. Bernard's reply was, I pity your majesty. So his majesty asked, why do you pity me, Bernard? Because he answered, you have said what your majesty and 50,000 princes cannot make me say. That is, I fear I shall be compelled. He pitied him. Because again, he was much like Pontius Pilate. There was Pilate saying, I have power to release you. I have power to destroy you. And Jesus understood what was motivating Pilate. And Bernard understood what was motivating the king of France. He said, I pity you because you said what I would never say, which you or all the princes of France could not make me say that I am compelled to do such and such. He would not be compelled under fear of death because he believed and trusted in God. And that overflowed, not with a sense of hate toward his his accuser, but a sense of pity. The coward dies a thousand deaths, the brave but once. That's a beautiful saying. The coward dies a thousand deaths, but the brave but one. And so, we must accept, we must own up what the Bible is saying to us here. The fear of man brings a snare. It brings a snare for ourselves. It brings a snare for those around through our example as we've been seeing in the life of Peter and other people. And so we prepare ahead of time. We say, Lord, how is it with me? What would I do in this situation? And really, through all these examples, where did it get the people who compromised? It got them nowhere, but shame on their faces. Embarrassment. And that to fear the name of God is to glorify Him. It's to say to Him, Lord, You are worth dying a thousand times a day for because Your love for me is so great that it casts out all fear, even the fear of man. Let's pray. Lord, help us. We know ourselves so 